Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today's episode is about identifying the top concerns of your C-suite and ensuring you know how to communicate to those concerns effectively. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. I'm looking at a report that's put out by a well-respected organization, ISC Squared. A lot of you are familiar with them as they administer the CISSP certificate, but they also do a lot more in terms of thought leadership as well. In this particular report, which you'll have in the show notes, the market research ran somewhere in the C-suite, an ISC Squared study on what cybersecurity leaders need to know about what executives need to hear. Now, as a study of 750 executives and trying to provide a window into the C-suite thinking with some actionable insights. Now, although it's focused on ransomware, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. We'll generalize from this study. Now, when asked about the most critical information they need from the cybersecurity team, the biggest priority cited by the respondents was for information on strategies to prevent ransomware from impacting data backup and restoration plans, basically making sure the business could keep on running. Also high-level, executives want to know is what it would take to restore minimal operations after compromise, how prepared the organization is to engage law enforcement in the event of an attack, and how prepared it is to engage cybersecurity investigators. All those responses were above 30%. None of them were over 40. So again, either not a lot of consensus out of 750 executives or it means that we have yet to really define some core area of concern across these enterprises. Well, here's where we're going to take a look at kind of the idea of these essential eight and a half. And I, I want to make an apologies in advance to the Australian Cybersecurity Center because, well, they have an essential eight. Uh, not to be confused with it, that's why I kind of differentiated here. But this particular report offers eight different top areas of concern for the C-suite, which I wanted to share with you, along, of course, with some extra material like we always like to provide at CISO Tradecraft. So we'll just call it eight and a half. The top area of concern for the C-suite was knowing our security function is working with IT to ensure our backups and restoration plans would not also be impacted by any ransomware attacks. That was 38% as the largest response. By the way, of the other seven the lowest is 29. So they're all kind of bunched together. Now, again, as I said before, this is a ransomware study, but we can generalize these results. Think about it for a moment. When was the last time you performed a partial backup? You had to restore some users' files, something screwed up, somebody deleted something, hard drive died, whatever. How about a full backup? Do you have any notes that document these procedures? What issues did you have the last time? How did you go ahead and create a knowledge base so that if you're not available when something happens, has to happen, or your person who does this is not available, someone else can pick up the notes and figure it out. Think about your backup strategy for a minute. What's your primary? Do you use Microsoft's OneDrive and SharePoint? Are you using a third-party service like Box or Dropbox, or maybe pushing everything up in the Amazon cloud? Or you're kind of old-fashioned, you like hard drives. We'll have our old RAID 5 array sitting there in the in the back room and we'll back up there. All those are potentially valid solutions. Of course, some are considered more modern than others. But the whole point about doing a backup is to ensure that you can make the operations continue in the event that the primary data source is missing. Now, ransomware traditionally has been attacked 
on availability. Of course, lately we've seen it's more going into the confidentiality as well, but we'll, we'll stick with that availability argument for right now. And so as a result, what you want to do is find ways to ensure your executive suite feels comfortable that you can restore your operations. And the closer you are to now or the time when something breaks, if you will, right of boom, as we like to call it, then the better off you are. If you could restore your systems within a couple minutes prior to it, that sounds great. Unless your transactional processing system, like a stock exchange, in two minutes is far too long. But even if it's five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour, you ought to know how much work you're going to have to redo. Now, a lot of online backup systems take care of that automatically. I'm using the OneDrive SharePoint solution, and things get backupped. And as soon as I connect to the internet, I get on an airplane. Okay, great. I go dark for a while. But when I resynchronize, everything gets back pushed up to the cloud. As a result, were something to happen to my laptop, I'm good. Think about your servers. You have that same level of assurance as well. And think about multiple outages. That's what you want to think about, making sure your restoration plans will not be impacted by attacks. Number two area of concern for the C-suite was knowing what it will take to restore minimal operations if we're compromised. That is, say, standing up backups, identifying priority systems, restoring basic services to meet basic mission needs. Now, when was the last time you did a business impact analysis, a BIA? You should be familiar with that, where you're going to rank order your critical processes to determine which is most important to the organization. I did my first BIA many years ago. I didn't even know that's what it was called. But it was a regional telephone company, and they had acquired six or seven other smaller businesses, and they were consolidating into a single data center. And their question was they wanted to know which application should be back up to a hot site. Hot sites are expensive. And so they gave me the job. Like, I was a 20-some-odd-year-old kid. What do I know about running a phone company? And I think I shared this in a previous episode, so I'll be brief. I went through to all the application owners, had them explain the impact of their outage for an hour, a day, a week, a month, rank ordered that, rank ordered the applications based upon their feedback, costed out each one, drew a line where they said their budget was, said everything below this you don't get, everything above this you do get. If you're okay with that, you're done. Otherwise, you need to relook at your numbers. So BIA allows you to restore minimal operations because you've identified in advance that you've ranked applications and data sources in order of criticality. Now, you want to make sure that management is okay with where that line is drawn because you might come out and say, you know what, we rank ordered everything the way the business application owners said that it fit, and the money we have, the resources we have are insufficient to meet the level of risk requested. So now you've got one of two choices. You either need to assign more resources to the problem or management needs to accept greater risk. That's it. And it's not one of these situations where you can finesse it or whatever. It's, it's going to come down to, can we afford to put more money into this system for making sure that we, our backups, our priority systems, et cetera, come back online? And usually organizations' risk tolerance drops significantly after the first event. There's a little bit of that deniability, oh, this can't happen. And denial with executives and cybersecurity events for years was a lot like denial with teenagers and automobiles and alcohol. Now, nah, it can't happen to me. Although it does happen a lot, not going to happen to me. And I think we've kind of turned that corner, I hope we have, from the executive perspective of it can't happen, 
because we're a little bit more aware now of the compliance requirements, the impact, and then things such as shareholder lawsuits, drop in equity value, et cetera. All these things tend to mean that executives are going to line up behind you if you can communicate and articulate what you need. So that BIA is going to allow you then to, in a very structured approach, say here, we looked across the organization. This is what's critical to the business. This is what it's going to cost to make sure there's resiliency. And I just want to make sure that you're okay with where this line is drawn. I don't care. I'm the CISO. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. But you need to know that below this line, you're accepting the risk if that's not coming up in a timely fashion. Okay, so that's the number two, which is going ahead and restoring minimal operations. Number three is interesting. It's knowing how prepared we are to engage with law enforcement. Are you a member of InfraGuard? I am. And I joined that several years ago. And InfraGuard is a joint project between the FBI, commercial organizations. Uh, if you join InfraGuard, you go to infragard.org. You can fill out an application. Note that they will do a brief background check on an as-available basis. No, you're not getting a top-secret security clearance, but they're just going to check you out a little bit. And, you know, if you didn't return that library book back in 11th grade, you know, maybe the FBI will find out. But more importantly, once you clear that, you're invited to become a member. You get a lot of alerts. You get a lot of threat information as well as the opportunity to attend InfraGuard meetings. Now, why would you want to go to another meeting? because you get a chance to meet the special agents and other representatives of law enforcement so that were you ever to need them, you're not calling up saying, hello, yeah, my name is yeah, G Mark, G M A R K. No, not Mark G, G Mark. You're going to talk to somebody, hopefully, that you've encountered a couple times before. You're not getting any special favors. But when you call up and say, hey, G Mark, how you doing? What's up? You've already got an initial relationship. They know they can take you seriously. And they're willing to listen to you. Donate your time. If you're able to do presentations, present to InfraGuard. They're always looking for speakers. Some chapters are much more active than others, but if you have a chance and time, get involved with that. It'll really pay off in the event you ever really need to do law enforcement contact. Now, the FBI and knowledgeable law enforcement will often do an executive briefing at your location with some advanced planning. Build that relationship because some of these uh, agents are in the business of, of course, reducing risk for America. And if one of those ways is to properly enforce decision makers and properly inform decision makers, yeah, I think you can make that happen too. CISA will do a no-cost assessment. If you want, you can contact them in Washington. Now, well, so will Russia, but the rules of engagement are better with CISA. And as a result, there's a lot of opportunity out there to get closer to law enforcement before you need them in a crisis. That's the important thing. Your first call to law enforcement should not be an introduction when something goes wrong. Your call when something goes wrong ought to be able to pick up on an existing, at least semi-personal relationship, if not a professional relationship, so they simply know who you are, they can take you seriously, and I think things will go a lot better. I'm not saying you're going to get any special favors. That's not my point. But the point is, recognize some of these professionals. I've run into a few dozen special agents, special agents in charge, and I am impressed significantly with the dedication, the knowledge, the intelligence, the, the degrees and everything else that these men and women have and that they, they serve that way. I think about 15 years ago, it was only the San Francisco field office that I thought I had a clue, but today uh, I've run into uh, folks from pretty much all over America, 
and uh, the FBI is good. Get to know them. Number four, knowing how prepared we are to engage a cybersecurity firm to investigate and respond. Well, the worst time to try to negotiate a contract is when you're in trouble because you really don't have a whole lot of leverage in terms of terms and conditions. They know that you're in trouble and they're just a matter of, hey, it's our price, take it or leave it. Now, what you can do is negotiate these T&C in advance. Some organizations will have retainers and you pay a retainer saying, in the event that something goes wrong, this money that you've given to us will apply toward whatever charge is necessary. Now, if nothing goes wrong, we get to keep the retainer. Thank you very much. So it's one of those things where you really don't want to use it. Sort of like life insurance. You don't win if you have if someone can collect on your behalf. But the organizations will charge you, and it's non-trivial amount of money. I've gone through at least one from a very popular uh, incident response team. And what came out of that was, well, okay, I went over it with legal. We figured out what we like. Can we live with this? And then it comes down to an interesting question. Do you sign the contract and pay however many figures it's going to be to have that retainer so that if you need them, they are there? Or you figure, okay, fine, I'm good with the TNC, terms and conditions. When something goes wrong, we'll just call them up, sign the deal, and go from there. There's a problem with the latter, and that has to do with what? System-wide, enterprise-wide, global-wide problems. When Log4j hit the fan, a lot of organizations are struggling. If you were to call up one of these incident response companies and said, hey, can, uh, can we sign up and get some help? They're like, sure, we'll take your money, and because you're a new customer, we'll get to you when we're done with our existing customers. That should be a few weeks. But I need help right now. Sorry, paying customers get headline privilege. And so you want to think carefully about whether or not it's worth the risk to take a fixed amount of funds to give away in a retainer for the offset that you get headline privilege in the event that you need some help when even when things are busy. Or do you want to go ahead and just kind of hope that there's not a major problem across other entities and then you could talk your way into the door with the contract at the time. The least valuable, the least insightful approach in my opinion is to not even look at the problem. Contact one or two of these companies, get their retainer agreements, go over with your legal department, find out if you can live with it, and then you make a risk assessment to determine the value. Is it worth the money you're going to pay? Now we're ready for number five, understanding where we're most vulnerable. Well, where is your risk? Where do you keep that? You should have something called a risk register, right? And there's a nice little article on that I found from uh, CyberSaint, but it talks about the things that you'd put into a risk register. That is to say, it's going to be able to show you where all the potential problems could be and how do we keep them all in one place. This is really important because you're going to include things such as a description of the risk, the categories, some analysis of it that's to determine its probability and impact, prioritize it. And what would your response be? And then who owns it? Now, by doing this, by identifying your risk, describing it, categorizing it, analyzing it, and assigning ownership, what you're able to do now is that when something goes wrong, it's not a matter that the problem goes away, but it means that you've thought about it and you've got a better chance to make things happen. So this isn't an issue where you'd go, 
I have no idea what might go wrong. And when something goes wrong, you get blindsided. The opposite would be, I know everything can go wrong and I've totally mitigated against it. That's not reality either. But it comes down to what Eisenhower said. The plan is nothing, but planning is everything. Now, Eisenhower, I believe, said that no plan survives contact with the enemy. In our world, it's not so much the enemy as I would say we can generalize that to no plan survives contact with the real world. Some event is going to occur that's going to cause something that you didn't expect to throw a little curveball at you. But you don't have to stop and stare like a deer in the headlights because you stopped to think about this already. You go, wait a minute, didn't we discuss something similar to this when we were doing our plan a couple months ago? As a result, most of the risks you should have documented, but those that you don't, you ought to have something similar or close to it where you can get a feel for who is going to own it. Number six, knowing how we will operate if our systems are compromised. That's kind of interesting. Do you go ahead and assume that if you are compromised, that your operations will continue? There's, of course, some situations where attackers may get in there and they're not in there to steal your information. They're not there trying to shut you down. They just want to steal cycles to do crypto mining. Yeah, interesting problem there. Well, now if your system is compromised, but the attackers are just doing crypto mining, what's the impact? Well, you get a little bit slower response time, but you know they may be taking better care of your systems than you are. I mean, after all, they got in. But we want to think about a business continuity plan or the BCP. What are your alternatives if for some reason you can't use some of these critical applications? Can we take sales orders on paper? Again, any of the old carbon paper forms. Remember the old credit card machines, what they used to call the knuckle buster? I think a couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago, it was P.F. Chang's restaurant chain. I'm not picking on them, just using them as an example because they seem to have a response. And they had a problem where their credit card database got hacked. So they went over to the knuckle buster. And I remember going to check out and the guy pulls this thing out from underneath the counter, pushes the piece of paper on there, puts a credit card on there, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, tears off the middle sheet, you sign it and off you go. Well, doesn't work so much anymore today. A lot of your credit cards don't even have raised numbers. And they're talking about MasterCard in a couple of years, not even printing the numbers of the card anymore. It's going to be contactless. And so we're getting to the point where we're going to be utterly dependent upon our systems and we'll have no real backups like we had before to do manually. So you want to think about how you operate if your systems are compromised, if they're not available. Number seven, understanding which third-party systems we use or integrate with. Now, you should have a configuration management database or a CMDB, and that's going to allow you to understand, if you will, what are the components. You heard a lot, perhaps, this past year about a software bill of materials or an SBOM where vendors are going to indicate what are the libraries that they're using, what are the contents, et cetera. Well, if you know what third-party systems you use or integrate with, and there's a vulnerability announced in one of them, you can make a more rapid determination as to what you need to do instead of then start sending emails, oh, by the way, is this a problem? Now, what percentage of these third-party vendors that you used have you actually submitted a vendor assessment to and they filled it out and sent it back? Is a CISO, I get these things about every month or two, and they're always different. Will somebody please standardize that for crying out loud? I think some companies are working on that. Where you fill out, do you have this? Do you have this? How do you do this? Et cetera, blah, 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 blah. Now, if you're not doing vendor assessments on your vendors, but others are doing assessments on you, it means that, well, their due diligence is a little bit better than yours, in my opinion. You can also look at companies like BitSight or Security Scorecard and get some rating on their vendors to see how things are going. 
And there's even companies like BlackKite that'll provide risk estimates of vendors based on open source collection. So understanding what your third-party systems are and the one you integrate with is are important, but then making sure you've done some measurement of risk and knowing what's in there so that in the event there's a problem, you can respond. And number eight was understanding what a response plan is. Now, response plans are important, but by no means is the whole response devolved down to the CISO. You're not going to be in this alone. They're not going to be like everybody, yeah, we're going off to play golf. I go, go ahead and recover the enterprise. Uh, we'll, we'll see you in the morning or we'll see you next on Monday morning after you've been up for 72 hours straight. So what you want to do then, because we're talking about executives and their concerns, is maybe turn this around a little bit. If next time you're briefing your risk committee for your executives, say, hey, I've got a little pop quiz for everyone. Can any of you tell me where is our business continuity plan physically located? I said, let's go get it. Can you come back a couple minutes and set it on my desk? Hmm. Not that I'm tasking you, but just could you do that? Who here in the executive risk committee knows where that is? Number two, what are the top three risks in our plan? We have a business continuity plan. What are the risks? Do we know what they are? Can you as an executive on the risk committee articulate those without having to go look it up? If not, we can go look it up, but this is something you should know. Number three, we actually tested any of these things in the last year. When were they given the authority to do so? And what were the results? How about out of the risk plan? Is there anything that requires key signatures? Sometimes for compliance, you have to have things that are signed by the chief legal officer or some C-level executive. What if that individual is unavailable and something goes down? Do you have interim designees assigned in writing? if compliance requires a signature, and can they lawfully provide that answer on behalf of the organization? And probably the last one would be, make sure you execute your call tree once a year. Are all the contacts that you need to reach already loaded into your cell phone? Let's face it, most of us don't memorize phone numbers anymore. We go ahead and have our executive assistant get someone on the line, or today software on our phone can do that, or we just start typing in the name and they find it. But the danger is, is that if you have to go look it up, or you say, ah, it's in Outlook, I'll go look it up there. If Outlook's not available and you don't have a paper copy, how are you going to call these people? If you don't know what their cell phone numbers are, if you don't know what their desk number is, well, it's in this app, but that system could be down. So those are things you can ask a risk committee and see if they are engaged on that. And you might find out that if you do it politely, You'll get them interested, and they'll be able to do something to help you understand a little bit more about managing that level of risk. I did a little bit of further research and found a Gartner Magic Quadrant for IT risk management. And like most Gartner Magic Quadrant reports, they sell for a couple thousand dollars if you were to buy them directly, or a lot of organizations have subscriptions to them, or you can go to a vendor that's finished high and right in the Magic Quadrant, and they'll usually give you a reprint in exchange for your contact information and expect to be getting some sales calls. Nothing wrong with that. That's how the business model works. But the September 2021 report states that is a strategic planning assumption that, quote, by 2023, 80% of organizations with formal risk management programs will use an IT risk management product to manage their cyber and IT risks, which is a significant increase from fewer than 45% today. Well, that to me sounds like a market that's going to double in two years. So I'm thinking like, all right, great. Let me get up my checkbook. I want to be an investor, even if I'm not using the product. But if you look at the Magic Quadrant leader list, you'll find ServiceNow, Diligent, Archer, OneTrust, SAI360, Metricstream, 
Navex Global, and IBM are in that upper right-hand corner. And there's a lot of other organizations that are in there. And oh, by the way, if you understand how the magic quadrant works, there's nothing wrong with not being high into the right. You could be a niche player and be exactly what your client needs because the ability to execute and the completeness of vision may be necessary for a huge enterprise. But if you're an SMB, I would not confine my search to the upper right quadrant of the magic quadrant. I would go ahead and look for other vendors as well. You might find at a better price, something that's a little bit more close to what you need. And interestingly enough, they may accommodate your requirements a little bit better. Now, if you're not familiar with IT risk management, the core capabilities of products include workflow management. So you can take your risk management models and, and use some pre-configurations and scoring to go ahead and figure out how they're going to get through. Data integrations and connectors. So you take technical data from multiple sources, put them in a central repository, and then correlate them. Do information asset discovery and inventory. There's already tools that do out that, but maybe you can integrate with that through an API or it might come natively in the product. User access, identity and access management capabilities of the systems. Again, something you probably already have with your existing enterprise. Risk analysis, logic and assessment methodologies to prioritize risk. And then risk treatment and life cycle. How do we do out of the box risk treatment to suit our culture or the organizational structure? There's a big one right here. The board or senior executive reporting express and report on risk in business terms. Now, that's a direct tie-in to what we're talking about here. And it also includes things like IT risk profiling, regulatory policy, content management, threat and vulnerability management integrations, and incident man management integrations. And so what we find then is that if you're looking at managing risk and your organization is a little bit more complex than a fairly small organization, having one of these tools might be very helpful. And it's also useful to be able to correlate, categorize, and then potentially communicate the information to your executive. Let's go back to that ISC squared study and take a look at some of the five tips that they offer. Tip number one for the cybersecurity team leaders was to increase the communications and reporting to leadership. So there's also a need for more detail, depth, and explanation in that reporting to ensure that leaders fully understand what's going on in the security landscape. They can make more informed decisions and they're more likely to support calls for cybersecurity investment if they understand the important. Number two is a tip. Temper overconfidence is needed. You see, sometimes C-suites get overconfident. They might think you're a rock star. Man, she's great. We don't have anything to worry about. You need to be realistic about that. Yes, that's gratifying. But it's time to speak up and deliver a dose of reality. Yes, it can happen to us. In spite of the best defenses, some things sometimes still go wrong, and we need to go ahead and have plans for it. As I think it was Dr. Eric Cole used to say, protection is important, but detection is a must. Talking about the identify, protect, detect, respond, recover in the cybersecurity framework. It's great if you can prevent every bad thing from ever happening. That's ideal, but it's not realistic. And so you need to be able to detect faster and better. So number two, temporary overconfidence. Number three, tailor your message. Understand and focus on the top areas of concern your executives care the most about and make sure the risk is positioned in a way that aligns with leadership's concern and then build your reporting around what's most important to them. What you find out then is if you let them take the lead in terms of defining what's important, after all, they've been entrusted with the organization. You can advise, but at the end of the day, if they say X, you say, roger that, we're doing X. 
You just want to make sure that your job is to make sure they give them informed consent, that they know the right thing to do. Tip number four for cybersecurity team leaders, make the case for new staff and other investments. Sure, we realize we never have all the people we need and all the resources that we want, but don't kind of rest on your laurels. In a way, you should kind of always be asking, you know, sort of, not maybe the first way you introduce yourself, but there should always be sort of a wish list. We understand that perfect security is not achievable. It's too expensive to fix absolutely everything, and we have to accept a certain amount of risk. But your decisions, your recommendations should be based on risk recommendations and not just kind of a random, oh, I want everything. And tip number five, make clear that ransomware defense is everyone's responsibility. Well, let's generalize that again to make sure that security is everyone's responsibility. CIC squared study showed that responsibility is not clear cut in the minds of the C-suite. Got kind of an even spread of those who believe that the ownership has belonged to cybersecurity for this, or IT, or executive leadership. Now, what worries executives if you get hit by a ransomware attack is the exposure to regulatory sanctions. That was the number one concern, 38% of them. Then followed by loss of data or intellectual property, fair enough. Loss of confidence among employees. Loss of business due to systems outage. Uncertainty that data wouldn't be compromised even after paying the ransom. Very specific to ransomware. Reputational harm. Whoa, big deal here remediation costs, and loss of confidence in the organization's security. So those are the things that worries executives when something really goes bad. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege to host a CISO panel at B-Sides Tampa. And I thought I'd just share with you the 10 questions I had prepared where you might want to consider thinking about these questions and your answers for yourself. Because I was up there running the panel, I couldn't take notes, so I don't have the exact uh, responses, but I believe everything was recorded. And so if you take a look for B-Sides Tampa 2022, you can find out that particular event, the CISO panel. First question I ask is, what did you do this past year that helps you sleep better at night? You see, it wasn't answering what keeps you up at night. What helps you sleep better at night? I got some interesting responses on that. So let me ask you, what did you do this past year that helps you sleep better at night? That took away the risk to make you feel a little bit less worried. If you can't think of anything, and maybe you need to look a little bit more closely in terms of things you can do to reduce your risk. Number two, what are the top metrics a CEO should use to measure CISO effectiveness? Hmm. I'm not sure if you ever thought about that, but you want to think about what's it. And if you don't know the answer, you can ask around or find out. Talk to your fellow CISOs or ask the CEO directly. Hey, what is it that works? What is it that shows you that I'm, I'm adding value to the organization? Number three, what are the potential implications of governments requiring cybersecurity licenses? Now, that was an interesting discussion. It came up with Rockefeller Snow several years ago when they're talking about creating a cybersecurity government registration of sorts that got shot down a couple of Congresses in a row. But it still brought up the interesting idea that there's a potential for our career, our profession to be regulated. Just like a CPA or a doctor or a lawyer, you got to meet certain requirements. You can't just say, I am a lawyer. You have to go ahead and, and pass these well-established requirements. But we can sort of do that in cybersecurity. In a way, certs are a proxy for that. But what are the implications of governments requiring that? And should a CISO have to certify like a CPA? Hmm. Number four, what's the best way to perform a third-party risk review? 
And any thoughts on alternatives to filling out client questionnaires? Okay, I stuck that in there because I get tired of these client questionnaires. Sure, I do them. But I'd love for there to be some sort of standard taxonomy where everybody agrees that if we have these answers, then you're good. I've talked to a couple companies, and what they're doing, they build an AI engine so they could go ahead and look at these information. You fill it out, and then when you, someone gets a questionnaire, you feed it to their engine, and it says, hmm, this looks like they're asking about that, and you've answered that before for a slightly different context, so let me answer that for you. And they could sort of fill it out for you. Not exactly perfect, and it's got some development to do, but that's a nice thing to do. I was looking really for product recommendations. I didn't think I'd get any. Number five, what technologies do you see on the horizon that will be a game changer in our industry? And we've got a couple answers on that one, but think about it. Do you know enough about the cybersecurity business market out there to know what potential products, applications, services are going to really change things going forward? Number six, have you seen any cyber impact from the current Russian war? And what are you doing to prepare for it? Hmm. Looking for the spillover effect on organizations there. Number seven, how do you approach the chronic shortage of eligible and available security personnel? And what training alternatives to expensive courses are you considering? Hmm. We all know that certs cost a lot of money. And sometimes you get somebody loaded up with certs and they, well, they leave because now they've got this fungible a tool that allows them to go ahead and say, hey, I'm worth more someplace else. So you want to think carefully about that, but it's important to make sure that you take care of your people. One of the real things that go well in cybersecurity for retention is organizations that invent inserts. So if you can make an investment in some inserts in education and make them want to stick around and set a bell for five or $10,000 more, then I think you'll do okay. Number eight, what advice would you offer an aspiring CISO? And that got some good answers in terms of people, how to get there, starting from the beginning or working your way up. But then my second part of that question was, what comes after CISO in your career path? So let me ask that of you. What goes next? I've known some folks who've gone from CISO to CIO. But I don't know many people, unless they're a company founder, went from CISO to CEO. So what it turns out then is that you're a C-level technical expert. And you might make it over to CIO. But the other thing also is that CISOs have competition now. It's not just the IT technical background. You'll find people from legal, from compliance, are getting into the CISO roles because they know how to communicate with senior executives. They know how to uh, deal with risk from an enterprise-wide perspective. And they may communicate better. They may also have those networks. So think about that carefully and don't just assume because you're the second most senior security person in the organization that the CISO job is automatically going to be yours. And number nine, what in security is much too expensive and subject to disruption by a new competitor? wasn't quite sure what I was trying to get to here, other than I'm trying to say, are there some areas in cybersecurity where we pay a ton of money and we know the vendors are making a huge margin, but at some point in time, someone potentially can come along and build something disruptive and knock them off that perch? It's an interesting awareness question, similar to the one I had before. Like number five, what technologies do you see on the horizon? It'll be a game changer in our industry. But think about that and see if there's anything you can think of that might be disruptive. And maybe you can get engaged with a new company. I've worked with a couple of firms where we've been pretty much their first or one of the very first commercial clients. And they've gone on to do quite well. And so sometimes if you have the same vision that the startup has, you might be able to 
A, get a good deal, and then B, grow with them. And the last one was, what would be your dream product or service if you could have it? Well, I don't know the answer to that because we never got to question 10. We ran out of time. But the thing is, is that ask yourself that. What would be your dream product or service if you could have it? Is anybody building it? How do you know? If you haven't found it, is it realistic? Could somebody be building it? Maybe take around and look at some of the incubators or some of the startup uh, areas where they have or the accelerators. You might find some of these things are out there. Uh, I've spent most of my career in small business. I've started a few firms. Some of them survived, some of them didn't. But the interesting thing is, is that the biggest difference between an established organization and a brand new startup is often one thing, the presence or the absence of customers. If you've got customers, you have to take care of that stuff. And so a lot of the innovation tends to get squeezed out of larger organizations, not because they don't have innovative people, but they say, hey, boss, I got this really cool thing I'd like to work on. And they say, hey, Mark, client deliverables due on Friday. Have you finished it yet? Eh, and you got to go back and do that. So think about those things. So let's summarize what we've talked about today. We've taken a look at the C-suite study from ISC squared and look at concerns they had, how IT security is working with IT for backups and restoration. What does it take to restore minimal operations? Can we engage with law enforcement? Can we have a cybersecurity firm for investigation and response? Where are we most vulnerable? How will we operate if our sisters are compromised? What third-party systems do we use or integrate with? And what's our response plan? And then having that nice little top five pop quiz that you could ask some of your executives, where's our BCP? What are our top three risks? Have you actually tested any of these things? Is there anything that requires a key signature and what are the interim designees? And have you exercised the call tree at least once a year? <sighs> well, hopefully you've got some good ideas out of this one and you'll find it valuable in your career. As always, at CISO Tradecraft, we try to provide information for you to help you out with your career and give you a wide range of knowledge. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Please make sure you follow us on LinkedIn. If you like our podcast, go ahead and subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Thumbs up would be nice. And let everybody else know where you get your great information because we'd love to share it with them too. So until next time, Stay safe out there.